This week we're going to be looking at Little Malcolm and his struggle against the Unix. It's Stuart Cooper's 1974 directorial debut. Um, it's the story of Malcolm, who's a, a would-be revolutionary expelled from art school as he and his followers Wick, Irwin and Nipple plan their revolution against the Unix of conformity. Uh, Malcolm is also struggling with his inability to actually act and do anything and with his attraction to classmate and Gedge. So is this this is your first viewing? Yeah, I'd never even heard of it, Matt, to be honest. When you suggested Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs, I was just like, what on earth are you talking about? Uh, it's a completely obscure British film, and yeah, it just really caught me by surprise. Yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect with a title like that. But yeah, first time I've seen it, I really liked it, to be honest. Um it's not an easy watch by any stretch, especially second viewing when you kind of know what all the ups and downs of the, the story. But, uh, you know, when a lot of the films that come out of this country are kind of postcards from from Britain, it was nice to see something that was really a kind of deep look at the, the melancholic, bitter soul of, of Britain. I definitely think, feel like it caught, caught, captured that. This was my first viewing too, although it sat on the shelf for 10 years. I came to this, and this is something I can't quite remember. I'd, I'd heard of Stuart Cooper's second film, Overlord, oh, yeah. um, and picked up a cheap DVD of it and was blown away by it. And then it was subsequently released by Criterion, which was great because then I got a Blu-ray of it. Um, and obviously, through investigating Stuart Cooper, had heard of this. And then, bang, like within a year or so, it, the BFI did a restoration and it came out on their Flipside label. So I you know, duly snapped it up um, and then it sat on the shelf until this year. That was like literally a decade of sitting on the shelf. Well, that's the story of the film though, isn't it? It's literally <laughs> a film that has sat on the shelf for four decades. Isn't yeah, it? I, I felt I'm... like since it, I mean, we'll, we'll go into some of the background in a bit, but yeah, I feel like I've really betrayed the film, adding an extra 10 years to its, uh, to its lack of audience. So this year I was going through like a massive pile of these films that sat on the shelf and just, just getting through them, making some amazing discoveries, and, and this is one of them. Um, I watched this very early in the morning as the sun was coming up. Um, so I was in that kind of completely open-minded, um, absorbing frame of mind. So I just took in the whole thing, uh, mm. and it was great. Uh, it was it was a more difficult watch the second time around. I think it's one of those films that you need one good receptive viewing of, and that'll give you the film. I mean, part of the reason that I watched Overlord and subsequently this is because of the technical credits on on them. It was shot by John Olcott um, and edited by Ray Lovejoy, who are both, you know, kind of Kubrick men, and I'll I'll kind of watch anything that they've worked on. Sure. Um, but I I would like to discuss something as a sidebar. Um, because when you look at the careers of John Olcott and Ray Lovejoy, you know you see they've got they've got some real highs. They've got two thousand. Yeah, definitely. You know, Clockwork Orange, Overlord, Barry Lyndon, The Shining. Um, that's for John Olcott, and then Ray Lovejoy uh, had the Ruling Class, Day in the Life of Joe Egg, Aliens, Batman. But then at the same time, he's also got Kroll and Sheena and Lost in Space. <laughs> I'm wondering, like you. And this is this is something I'm completely on the fence about, and I'm, I'm would love to hear anyone else's opinion on it. I'm wondering if if the Kubrick thing is a curse within the industry as well as as well as a blessing, because we all kind of know from reading making ofs now that Kubrick, you know, oversaw a lot of the photography himself, sure, and actually you know did it in terms of lighting and choosing lenses and and everything really. So the you know there is a feeling that the actual the DOP is a technician and that kind yeah, of sure, extends sure. to eyes wide, eyes wide shut where you know, the DOP is, is listed literally as lighting cameraman. Yeah, yeah. And the same with, you know, Ray Lovejoy because, you know, Kubrick literally hands on edited a lot of his films and would have somebody to help. Um, I wonder if it, there isn't that feeling in the industry that prevents, that gives people a good rep that present prevents them from being, you know, the Titans that they could be. If that, if that Kubrick tag holds people back a bit. 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I could see how that you know might be a curse, but I also think Kubrick's renowned for not suffering fools, and I think somebody that was just a you know skilled and experienced technician and didn't contribute anything to the vision. I I think he would lose patience quite quickly with someone like that. I think he needs, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke on 2001, who needs somebody that's on his level for him to just kind of almost proofread what he's doing, you know, to sort of, yeah, know, to, to be his good, a good second, you know, a good Lieutenant commander as he walks into battle. Like, I think, you know, I think he would want strong vision beside him. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But saying that, I did. I think I sent it to you that documentary from American cinematographer on John Alcott. Yeah, when and he's he's, <laughs> he's working he's on, on Vice Squad. <laughs> yeah, and well, also you see John Alcott behind the scenes on a film that he's working on in Los Angeles, and the lights beautiful, and the sets look really kind of amazing. There's a whole village built on stilts, and you know the costumes look great, and they, they're engineering this shot with a dog walking through the corpses after a massacre, and it just looks fantastic and it, i was scratching my head trying to work out what it was without checking imdb and you know I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the fantasy genre but i think like conan the barbarian is a really great example and i was thinking maybe it's on that kind of standard and then i looked it up and it was beastmaster which i've never seen but it was on amazon so i started watching it out of loyalty to you know the documentary and to see what this master of cinematography had done before and it was shonky really? as hell. Yeah, yeah. I, I bailed after about 15 minutes. It was, okay. I, yeah, I was really like, wow, what is this? So Okay, so back to Little Malcolm. Do you a quick bit of background? Yeah, yeah. Just while we're quickly talking about the crew, I just wanted to mention that the assistant director was Kip Gowans, who uh, was also the assistant director on Never Let Go and Downhill Racer. Oh, Okay. So we have a little uh, Kip Gowan's season going on. Um, I, I just want to flag up something I only, I only saw because I was reading the booklet for the Blu-ray, which has got lots and lots of really good informative articles in it. Uh, the art director for Little Malcolm was Edward Marshall, who did Room at the Top for Jack Clayton. And oh, nice. Charlie Bubbles, which is kind of, it's on the shelf as a, a future contender for this podcast. Oh, okay. uh, it was Albert Finney's one directorial movie and it's pretty interesting yeah just a sort of interesting background to this project it seems like Stuart Cooper was here as an actor first it looked like he got a uh, one of the only Americans to get a scholarship to RADA half a dozen I think and in his class were Anthony Hopkins just graduating you had John Hurt and David Warner I think Mike Lee was in maybe in one of the years below him or something. So they're all kind of there and connected. And I think Halliwell was in their class too, right? Yeah, I think so. Mike Lee had said that uh, Halliwell was one of those confrontational and argumentative types and that apparently he kept a raincoat on for a whole year after the headmaster at his college told him to take it off. Brilliant. I know somebody like that and they were as successful in life as Malcolm. Yeah, me too. I was, I, was, I was at film school with somebody exactly like that as well, yeah. who, was, who was really kind of vocal about his anarchic ambitions. But any time one of the tutors addressed him directly, he was very much like, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, <laughs> sir. It was always a, a little bit disappointing to see him kind of cowed like that. Halliwell originally wrote it as a long, long play, and it was produced in a six-hour version by Mike Lee, starring Halliwell as Malcolm. Apparently he was very, very difficult to direct and very averse to cuts. I had one other note about um, David Halliwell. Uh, apparently a working title or a title that he liked for this project was called One Long Wank. I'm surprised. I guess it's a theatre play. I'm surprised there isn't more reference to wanking and masturbation and sexual fantasy <laughs> since that is kind of like about 30% of the, the, the inner life of a lonely 20-year-old. Yeah, I read... Uh, uh, a fairly recent interview with Mike Lee and he said the uh, uncut version of the play is about 15 hours and one of the best pieces of writing he's ever read. That initial run ground to a halt very quickly and then it was chopped down to two hours for a run in the West End with John Hurt and according to a poster I've seen online, Rodney Buse, 
you must possibly play to win. George Harrison saw that version and loved it, and in one of his very earliest film ventures, put his own money into producing it. I read two different versions of this as well. So one version says that it's his money, and the second version says that it's the profits from... Yellow Submarine. Yellow Submarine. Yeah, yeah that's it. So, And I think that's how it ended up getting kind of just tied up in legal limbo when the Beatles split and all their kind of assets yeah, were all kind of seized, weren't they? After it got caught up in that legal nonsense, um, they did get dispensation to take it to the Berlin Film Festival where it won a silver bear, I think in 1974. But then, you know, the heat from the film had died down uh, and it literally sat on a shelf forever until 2010, 2011. Literally just shelved yeah. and forgotten. According to the technical details on the Blu-ray, it's, it's held by the George Harrison estate. They're the ones who released the negative for the new scam. And let's not forget, like, George Harrison was a major player in British, in the British film landscape in the 80s as well with handmade films. You know, he made Mona Lisa, Long Good Friday. Yeah, and I feel, I feel bad that I left it, you know, almost 10 years between buying the flip side Blu-ray um, and finally sitting down to watch it. I feel like I've, I've contributed to that loss <laughs> somehow. We didn't have a podcast 10 years ago, so we wouldn't have had anyone to tell. I could have told you. Oh, yeah, that's true. So we open with Malcolm um, sitting alone in his freezing... I'm assuming, judging by the state of the building, they're living in a squat. In his freezing squat in winter in Oldham, um, willing himself to get up and get out of bed. And I think this kind of sets the tone. Obviously, it's it's based on a play, um, and it has a kind of slight theatricality to to the dialogue and the performances. Um, Stuart Cooper said that he 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 didn't want to kind of gussy up the material too much. He just wanted to to let the kind of the the beauty and the skill of of the writing come through and then just kind of illuminate it slightly. Yeah, but, I think it's so well balanced as an adaptation of a theatrical piece that it you know. You feel the landscape and the world around them, but it, it you know it, it doesn't feel like they've deliberately tried to translate it into something else. It just feels my my note literally note on the page is the lighting and decor are a pleasure. Yeah, but what I, what I love is you know a theatrical adaptation. They could have easily just ignored the outside world, and the photography just balances out the exposure so that you can see the texture of the city outside of the windows when they spend so much time in the squat, you still feel it. And I think there's even a couple of contra zooms in there, very, very kind of subtle ones where the uh, the background just cre is creeping forwards and it's a little bit oppressive. I think it's, it's really, really nicely done. I'd, in a similar vein, I really like, um, there's, there's a few kind of brief cuts across the road to the art school where you can see kind of wick, oh, yeah. wick inside the cafeteria and um, Irwin leaving to come over and see Malcolm. And they're just like really, really nice little, just brief moments that open the world out for you. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and beautiful sort of contrast of lighting, those lovely sort of warm interiors in, inside the art school. Um, and I love Irwin's red scarf, which contrasts with everything sure, around sure. him all yeah, the time. Really nice. Yeah, it's great. In this opening scene, Malcolm gets himself out of bed and his friends come to visit him and talk about how he's been expelled from art school and I think that happened to Halliwell as well didn't he, he was expelled from yeah, art school briefly in 1959 apparently and then he was readmitted he still bears a grudge <laughs> two decades later but what, what I love about those two guys is that they've come up with this idea of showing their loyalty and camaraderie and their solidarity with Malcolm Scrawdyke by um, <laughs> creating secret signals to give him sort of subtle winks whenever they're close by and he's like you spineless bastards no all we're going to do is start a revolution start a war and they quickly uh, they quickly accept that as as their new reality i think that's you know he's quite convincing isn't he mm. so then they they leave and go through the freezing dark streets and catch a very vintage bus to the pub um i note i notice when they enter george harrison is on the jukebox George Harrison, oh, right, okay. he does like to insert his music into any <laughs> film. Well, I guess he's paying for it, isn't he? Yeah. 
um, where they scheme to form a political party. And it's quite interesting that um, when they're doing this, they're quite upfront about the fact that it has nothing to do with any genuine political ideas um, or desire to make the world better. It's, as they say, in order to do all the things we've always dreamed about and achieve absolute power. If only politicians were so honest nowadays. But this is this scene in the pub is one of those ones where, I, well, I mean, I'd already kind of oohed and aahed over a few things in the first scene, but in this, there's just some lovely low-key shots. The shot of Irwin yeah. with those kind of like soft focus, kind of light reflection. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just unshowy, but amazing. We also get to see um, Anne Gedge, who is the object of Malcolm's distant, distant affection. There's a brilliant line in Lucky Jim, um, Kingsley Ames' book, Lucky Jim, about somebody who has a crush on somebody who, who is ne- never ever going to make a move, and he says all, all, all he's willing, all he's capable of doing is looking palely across the room at her, um, <laughs> and that's Malcolm. Um, although apparently he's he's supposed to have a date with her tonight and has forgotten about it. I think that his kind of impotence is is part of the uh, the subtext for his character, isn't it? All the way through, you know, he he t- talks tough, but any time he's alone with Anne, he, he's a, a powerless little boy, isn't he? he? Doesn't has well, in fact, all all three of them don't really know how to communicate to women, and I think they're sort of party of dynamic erection is them trying to muster their own uh, yeah, male, male list amongst themselves. <laughs> we learn here that Malcolm's been kicked out of art school, um, although he does say earlier on that it's been five years of dossing about, um, and I think it's Allard who's the guy, the, the tutor who's kicked him out, becomes the, the subject of their, their petty grudge, yeah, yeah, which is the it. basis for the whole film. I love it that we never see him in the whole film as well. I think that's, that's just a really nice touch that he is this sort of mythical figure. But you, as, as you listen to the other characters, you do sense that Allard's probably all right. He's probably a decent teacher. He's just at his wit's end. In fact, don't they even say at one point, look, you can just go back if you want. Yeah. Malcolm takes the bus home and bumps into Anne Gedge. Um, I would just like to drop a slightly creepy note in here just to say that this is uh, Rosalind Ayres is one of my biggest screen crushes, and I've seen oh, yeah, okay. three films this year. Really? Um, yeah, she's she's in That'll Be the Day, which I watched recently. Well, mm-hmm. watched again recently, and she's in this, uh, which is a pleasant surprise. And she was also in uh, the the movie version of The Lovers, the Jack Rosenthal sitcom, which was made into a movie a few years later. Um, and she plays um, a young, uh, sexually hungry young woman in that, which was, You're right. yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a dreadful film, but um, she's in that too. I've seen three films of this, purely by <laughs> yeah. chance that she's in this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's fantastic. It's it's a really well-written character as well, because she does start off as just like the prize, doesn't she? This sort of doe-eyed, gorgeous, fawning, patient you know, angel, and by the end, you know, she really kind of has some fire. And, yeah, she uh, completely creates her own agency, doesn't she? Yeah, she has her own voice and, you know, the sort of f- f- feminist frustration at being always parked second to the men. I think all of that comes through crystal clear. I just it, it, Her arc really caught me by surprise that it wasn't just another sort of second fiddle female for... <laughs> the mentor ogle. Yeah, it, it, and you do worry with a film that's kind of it's. It, I mean, it, it doesn't obviously agree with the things they're saying, but it is quite indulgent and it does like its characters. You you worry that she's just going to be that kind of, you know, we're going to see everything through their gaze, and nothing yeah. else. But what's nice is it does that, but then it sort of turns it on its head right in the third act, and we see all of the characters through her gaze. <laughs> And she articulates her contempt for them and her frustration and boredom at all of their kind of thoughts and decisions. And it was really good watching it the second time round. You do actually get a lot more, even in Anne's early scenes, you can you can see things through her eyes. Like this, yeah, yeah. this conversation that we're going to talk about next where uh, he goes for coffee at Anne's late at night. Um, you can see that she's kind of quietly tolerating his eccentricities while she's trying to get through to him. And now he's just acting a fool, isn't he? He's acting kind of like he'd, he forgot they were supposed to be going to the cinema and he's, it's like he's forgotten how to talk to her. Yeah, I do I do like Malcolm 
in in the coffee scene he's he kind of is quite vulnerable um but then when he kind of brings his self-pity up as as a defense it's got all i want to do is be treated like a human being it's like yeah, she's treating him like a human being she's already doing it yeah and because he overthinks everything that he says and does he's just unable to do anything naturally and even have a conversation when there's just two of them in the room yeah that's it there's one nice device which i think they kind of lose about halfway through the film but where he's he, he's talking to himself and and it's like he's realizing that the mistakes that he's making and just trying to put himself back on the correct path fuck the party if i could bring this up if i could if i could get out that would be my real conquest not all this dynamic crap i'll get her after all i know i'm a great man and it's brilliant that after that, you you know, he says, after all, I'm a great man. And then you do a hard cut to, no, you're wrong, which is the, uh, the ridiculous pedantic argument with Nipple about the jacket and the corduroy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, this is a great piece of writing because I think if you get that kind of exchange between two pedantic characters, if you get that wrong, it would be excruciating to watch. But it's actually, it's quite funny and it's desperate and, you know, you really feel like... They're both jockeying for supremacy in this argument and neither of them are going to let it go, which is nice. I do like the fact that we go straight from like one of Malcolm's few, you know, genuine, genuine moments of insight where he's taking a realistic look at himself. Well, semi-realistic. And then you cut to this sort of pissing about that wastes his entire life. <laughs> All of this kind of nonsense argument and rhetoric. It's nice though because it shows that Nipple isn't one of those um, uh, guys that just blindly follows Malcolm. You know, he, he if Nipple believes he's right, he'll he'll stand his ground, and this kind of pays off nicely later on. Where Malcolm puts Nipple on trial, doesn't he? Nipple's almost as bad as Malcolm. He's doing this thing. I've got this note here where you, you've got this repeated rewriting of your kind of exclusion as, as a kind of sort out outsider status. As if, yeah, that's it. you know, the fact that you're an outcast because you're a, you're a Muppet is something that yeah, you've yeah. sought out and it's a, it's a, it's a choice. It's yeah. a choice. Yeah. I love there's a, he has that monologue later on where he's talking about meeting a girl at a party and how wild their, their, you know, sexual liaison was. And then Malcolm's like, I was there, mate. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not what happened. It's really nice. Put down. There's, there's a really nice touch in here where Nipple starts going into one of his because Nipple's a would-be writer, um, and he's actually mm -hmm. he's quite good with words. Yeah, he's, he's really just, sort of sensory, isn't he? Yeah, he's, his, his storytelling's know. really good. But he goes mm -hmm. into his kind of story about when he starved himself and moved into a hallucinatory state, and it's really carefully shot, just a slow creep in on him, and there's some like yeah, yeah. really really subtle sound design coming in in the background <laughs> just to emphasise it. Then Wick and Air in return, and we start to get some of the party politics going on don't we some of the yeah, it was when we get to the, the first hail scrawdike which i think when they took the play to broadway that's what it was called was hail scrawdike instead of little malcolm i made a note that it felt very much like a pantomime it has when they're first talking about the the party and the salutes and the, you know planning the kidnapping it definitely feels like a pantomime like that they, they all of them know they're not going to go through with it but they're enjoying living in that sort of fantasy mind space where you can just do anything, you know, when you're playing, when it's make-believe, mm. you can play at kidnapping and revolution and all of these things. And it's, it's interesting that, that when they're talking about, talking about and kind of planning and enacting their kidnap, it, it, it just kind of underlines the fact that, you know, they're talking about something quite dangerous and illegal and political and would-be revolutionary, but they are just like a bunch of kids playing, exactly, playing yeah. in a ruined car. And yeah, then, I mean, that's such a wonderful scene. That's such a really well-executed sequence. Love that. The way that they And the way that they're talking to each other as well and explaining what they're doing. I mean, I used to do that when I was a little kid. When you were making, yeah, yeah. When you were making up games and playing in the woods, you'd explain what happens next as, as yeah. it was happening. Yeah, yeah. And I remember sitting on the swings with friends when I was about nine or ten years old. And we talk about how we used to jump off the swings and do somersaults. And one guy made up a story about breaking his own leg. And you just kind of run with it all, don't you? Because your imagination's fevered and wild. And it's, you know, they're in, it just feels like they're really enjoying that playtime. I, I love the fact that they're going to ch change all the calendars to have their, their, their names for the months. And they decide that they're going to do the kidnapping on Scrawdike the 9th. <laughs> it's all of those silly things that you just... 
it's it's intoxicating and as you're watching it you know you you do just go along with them oh yeah fuck it I'd love to be running around with them you know planning a kidnapping it's really exciting I've been thinking we need a new calendar we need new names for the months yeah that's a great idea man hey well we could give them our names exactly so this month becomes the month of Scrodak March becomes Wick April Irwin and May Nipple <laughs> you can't call them month Nipple you'll have to change your name I'm not changing my name and the, the the movie kind of gets into the mood of it as well. You got those little silly bits of you know um, theatrical lighting. You know we're in the we're there kind of quote in the car and driving away with Alar. Yeah, then yeah. and there a red light and you get the red light. It's really good. It's yeah. lovely. The guy in the back as well. He's so good at um, doing all the car noises as they're driving along. <laughs> it has that dog feel feel to it, doesn't it? Where the, yeah. the kind of commitment and conviction of the the cast bring it into reality and the imagination. <laughs> Stop at the end. Straight round the corner. Well, past Borough Park. It's not going to drive light. <laughs> there aren't any traffic lights there. There are. Their um, plan for the kidnap is something to like causing a distraction by stealing a painting from a gallery. They're going to steal a Stanley Spencer painting and they're going to kidnap Allard and get him to tear up the painting so that Get him to destroy it, that's right. Yeah, get him to destroy the painting so that he'll obviously take the blame for that and be an outcast. Yeah, it's a mad plan, isn't it? Sort of when you say it out loud, it doesn't make any sense, but it Mm. seems like it makes a lot of sense to them. The kidnapping moves to this amazing kind of semi-derelict hall, another of the locations. We haven't mentioned, have we? It was shot in in Oldham... um, in the striped deserted buildings of the gas board. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so they got this whole enormous building as kind of a location and production base, um, which is why you've got all those different, you know, different areas of it, like the yeah, yeah. what they use as the courtroom and the the rooms they use as their as their squat. I went to Oldham about fifteen years ago, and I think it pretty much looks the same. It's the subject of Ellis Lowry's paintings. Yeah, which, is, yeah, okay. which is something I didn't know until this morning, but I thought the the wonderful bits in the snow later on look like Lowry paintings. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Cityscape shots. When the kidnapping progresses into the hall, you get some, some more imaginative framing and camera movement and some really good subtle music under Malcolm's rant. So Wick is standing in for Allard as they rehearse their kidnap plan. And when Malcolm rants at him, I, I love that it feels like something he's constructed in his mind and is finally able to vent, and he just pours it out, this kind of rage, the vitriol in there, and the, the focus on on Allard. I, yeah, I thought that was really kind of terrifying and mesmerising. Um, it's really good subtle use of music in this. It's Stanley Myers, who's kind of like a, a regular on the kind of British low-budget thriller scene at the time. Did the music for The Deer Hunter later on as well. Oh, wow. following scene is um, Nipple winding up Malcolm about Anne Gedge. Um, is my note, and then he goes into his ridiculous, fanciful story about picking up a, a, a stereotype, um, curvy African woman at a yeah, party. He, said, he says her dress is as tight as a drum skin, <laughs> um, with subtle use of tribal music underneath. My main note from this, though, is is another of those kind of moments of self-realization or self-understanding. It's like, what what will we do when we're in power? And it's like nothing. Nothing. We just, want, we just want power for its own sake. What What are our aims? Nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Soaring pyramids to nothing, I think he says, isn't he? Uh, the next scene is um, another scene with Anne. Yeah, so this is when he walks past her house and he's kind of, again, trying to motivate himself to just grow up and focus on, you know, what's real in life and, you know, talk to Anne and just be nice. I did. I did find that quite sympathetic. I did. I did do a bit of walking past a girl I likes house when I was twenty as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and he kind of accidentally bumps into her, and they go to the club uh, to see a couple of very very seventies bands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a nice moment here where he starts to talk about the agenda for the uh, party of dynamic erection. And she listens for a minute or two and then just gets up and goes and sits somewhere else. 
Like it isn't even worth engaging with. I thought that she just got up to go and watch the band and he could quite easily have gone with her to watch the band with it being a gig, but he just sat there stewing. felt like their table was kind of close enough. She only moved like two tables forward. And then the film takes um, a, a drastic visual turn because it starts snowing. And it <laughs> yeah. looks amazing. It really buckets it down, doesn't it? Yeah. But from going from these um, dank gas board building interiors, which, you know, they're all beautifully photographed in shades of brown and grey and, and orange yeah, and, and beige but then you go to these crisp white landscapes with, with touches of blue and then there's Irwin. yeah that's it yeah that's Irwin. it it's like a beautiful blanket isn't it of white yeah I put Larry-esque but then that was mm. completely cancelled out by the fact that Larry actually did paint Holden and you get Wick's impromptu speech and then this whole thing is like a kind of semi-theatrical thing with, with Malcolm going into a slightly more more serious rant Oh, his Hale Scrawdike speech. I love this speech because it has that thing. It's not well thought out and it's repetitive and it's vague. Um, the obvious comparison is with Hitler, but his speeches were so like razor focused that this just feels, it feels more like Trump than Hitler. Everywhere I looked, I saw decadence, apathy, cynicism and decay. And try as I might, I could not rid myself of the spectre that haunted me. The spectre of a dying culture. Materially fat, but completely lacking in all the spiritual direction. Promise and aspiration which made our race great over the millennia. I think he does take it quite seriously, though. This is this is his kind of rest, refuge from, from the frustrations of the real world. And in fact, the, he ends with, I offer you dignity, which is mm -hmm. the one thing that he kind of can't have he kind of craves genuine dignity and to be able to respect himself but he he can't do that because he can't attain anything because he doesn't do anything yeah, yeah exactly i think this is probably the turning point between malcolm and nipple and i think that's because malcolm's taking this quite seriously and nipple thinks he's still playing games and comes out with his assassination attempt. yeah that's it yeah. Here I he's got a gun yeah. yeah and it returns to boys playing games where i think for malcolm it was something a, getting a bit more serious now for him so nipple talks about the assassination and they talk about chasing chasing the assassin and apprehending him and they say that nipple can't even run and he's adamant that he can run he says of course i can run and then he, they do a, a, you know a foot chase and he just has this really kind of gangly slow run it's it's really funny to watch and um Owen is like a whip. It just chases him down, piles him into the snow, and uh, and beats him up. This is a lovely kind of moment where they roll down the hill as in in the snow. It's really like one of those cinematic adaptations that definitely lifts it beyond the stage play. It looks so beautiful. Congratulations, Owen! You have successfully saved my life. And you're dead. No. No. I escape. How could you possibly have escaped? Oh, that old of you. Well, you wouldn't have had a chance to do all that if it was for real. I'd just fire at point blank range, and in the confusion, I'd just run away. You can't run. Of course I could run. Should we talk a little bit about John Hurt? Yeah, absolutely. You know he was 34 when he made this film. Yes, and he looks it as well. Well, yeah, but I mean, he. whenever you've seen him outside of this film, he looks even much older. This is the youngest I think I've ever seen him on screen. Yeah, I've, he's one of those people, he's like Ian Holm, who's always sort of timelessly about 50 for me. Except obviously for when they get very, very old and suddenly they're, they're just old men in films. It's a slight stretch of the imagination. John Hurt, less so because he's kind of, he's got quite a, a young, innocent face. It's more of a stretch for David Warner. David Warner is kind of a 20-year-old student. And I remember the casting thing, what? What's going on? Yeah, I think they played both the characters on stage, didn't they? So that's that's how they carried it over. But yeah, I thought they were pretty convincing as, well, maybe not as teenagers, but early 20-somethings who maybe, you know, it's, it's the 70s, maybe they're smoking too much and certainly not getting any sunlight up north and not getting enough exercise. I thought I thought they were all right. I don't know what to say beyond that. Um... <laughs> well, I mean, it's John Hurt, isn't it? You kind of have to take a pause to acknowledge his incredible body of work and kind of lifelong career on screen is... It's pretty staggering, isn't it? I think the, the breadth of work that he's done and his constant presence in cinema. I had uh, like a loose John Hurt anecdote, which was when I was at film school, there was a person in the year below me who had got John Hurt to be in one of their student films. Mm. And apparently he was 
well known for any time he wasn't working on a, some proper professional shoot. He'd be hanging around film schools, working with students and just lending them as much of his time as he could spare. And apparently he was you know, quite well known for doing that. Oh, really? Yeah, tons of student films. He's in, oh. like from the 90s to the noughties, he's in, uh, yeah, loads. Well, what's the motivation for that, do you think? Just enjoyment of doing it and, and helping out? Or do you think it was... I think so, yeah, just, just balance, I think, you know. I remember reading um, as part of his, you know, one of the many obituary type articles and recollections of him, that obviously he's a heavy drinker and used to spend a lot of his time in pubs in Soho. Um, and people who'd encountered him said, you know, he's extremely affable and would chat all evening. As long as you're not talking about films and his career, he'd be ha- happy to talk all night. Oh, my God. How would you not ask him about <laughs> Alien or, you know, Elephant Man? How could you not bring it up? And David Warner. He's fairly established at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's what two, I was going to say. He's, 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 he's done he's, two films with Peckinpah. Yeah, and he's established, point. you know, verging on hot. He's kind of... I don't mean sort of mm. sexually hot. I mean like as a hot actor. He's um he'd already kind of been been a kind of edgy edgy kind of semi star in you know Morgan a suitable case for treatment and that sort of thing in the late sixties. It's quite interesting to see him in such a small film. I think it must be just you know getting the the band back together, all those guys that were students together, you know, finally getting a, a chance to make a movie together, playing characters that they know inside out. This is what's John Hurt. You just, I just I can't think of any way to cram in Snowpiercer and Hellboy and V for Vendetta and that brilliant cameo that he had in the proposition. The Osterman Weekend. Heaven's Gate. Like, I just want to say the words out loud, even, <laughs> even if I just end up cutting them out. Time Bandits for David Warner. Should we say Time Bandits? Tron. The Omen. Cross of Iron. Star Trek's five and six. He plays different characters, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. He's in the next generation as well, isn't he? They do a lot of that in Star Trek, having actors... Pop up in in different roles throughout the different iterations. I guess they never expected people to see them again. (laughs) Back, go back, go back. Following this, Malcolm is loitering outside Anne's again and loses his nerve, just can't go up to the door and knock. Uh, And then he's back at his digs, desperately urging himself to do something, um, at which point he discovers the kind of the the office big office what looks like a council chambers which um then becomes his his courtroom for the show trial for nipple another great scene because it goes from uh, being quite comedic and farcical to very serious and um you know you as you're watching you feel the blood drain out of you because it just feels like oh my god they're going to go too far and there's a wonderful moment towards the end of that where even nipple says look you're my friend. Now's a really good time to stop this. The second time I watched this, this is just a little caveat. The second time I watched this, it was when I began to feel that watching a stage adaptation sometimes felt like that. I think it's probably because I'd seen it, it felt more spontaneous the first time around, but second time around, you can feel the construction of the scene. You know, you yeah, realize, yeah. okay. I, I have landed at the beginning of a scene and it's going to play out slowly and steadily in this way, in the way that a piece of careful theatrical writing... Yeah, that's would. it. It's completely self-contained, isn't it? Yeah, but that was, wasn't was such a good thing for me second time round. I mean, I really like the whole scene. I really like the fact that at the end you can see there is some genuine feeling for Malcolm. He he is feeling what Nipple's saying, and he, but he just can't allow his self-esteem to drop. Yeah, that's it. And I've seen another failure. Yeah, that's. I mean, that is a very male thing. I've I've seen it not only in myself, but in certainly in in other people in my life in in ways that have that have wrecked their lives. Um, and I think you know this is one of the the turning points for Malcolm. It's so stubborn, isn't he? Yeah, he just cannot allow that sense of dignity and self to drop and allow something into his life that way. And immediately following Nipple's show trial and expulsion, um, we have the climactic visit. Um, Anne pays Malcolm a surprise visit. Uh, she's wearing a really nice denim outfit. Yeah, yeah. Lovely shirt. Um, yeah. Malcolm's still talking about the mission, which is the kidnapping of Allard, which is supposed to happen tonight. Um, and Anne is kind of quietly and patiently disdainful of the nonsense that he's talking yeah, I mean, we feel her just kind of, again, being patient, but really running 
running out of patience as well. You can see it bubbling up and comes right to the surface and she kind of... And I think she's thought through what she wants to say to him, but she's just, you know, she's just kind of testing the water. She gives him so many opportunities to stop his delusion yeah, and just, just snap back into the real world. <laughs> and then when she's kind of reached the end of her tether, she just decides to try, I guess I wouldn't say it was a ploy, but just to try a different tactic with him that she's been considering, which is just to say to him, how would you like to fuck me? Just confront him directly with a, a, a sexual offer that she knows that he's never going to be able to take. A lot of it is uh, about his kind of impotence and this idea that she can just like directly engage with that and say, okay, if, if this is what you want, if you want a kind of part of dynamic erection, if you want freedom to fuck and to, you know, be a man, then let's, let's have a look at that and see what that looks like. And instead of him responding to it, he just is like a total prude, isn't he? He's, yeah, just he's outraged by her behavior. And yeah, that's it. He's like a Victorian stereotype. Doesn't she say something about that? What does she say? Don't tell me there's a Victorian gentleman lurking beneath that <laughs> angry young muck. <laughs> such a good line that like nails him completely doesn't it but it's not it's not even a, even then it's not even a heartfelt response you know he isn't a conservative he isn't a prude it's just another front that he has to put on to kind of deal he's with powerless him. isn't he yeah, yeah and to, to avoid actually digging into his own feelings and reactions yeah, yeah. to it he tells him he's got the, the biggest front and she goes into a speech that absolutely nails him and all of his friends yeah yeah but also it's that thing that, you know when you are young and you know, other people seem really mysterious and, you know, like they have a whole internal life that you don't know anything about and you're really kind of curious about other people. And then when you get close, you realize there's, you know, not everybody has that kind of depth or, you know, interest beneath the surface. They're just kind of treading water almost. And he is definitely one of those people. Yeah. I used to have half of that when I was like 18, 19. I was like incredibly shy with girls and, and with women. Um, but, and this wasn't a conscious thing and I have to state that I wasn't like deliberately trying to compensate for it in the way that, that Malcolm does by building mm -hmm. up this front, but people thought that I was kind of self-possessed and cool, right. cool is the wrong word, but people thought that I was self-possessed and in control and just a bit aloof. But the fact was that I was just completely unable to speak to girls naturally <laughs> Um, and I thought can, you were much more interesting than you actually are. That's exactly it. <laughs> I mean, obviously that continues to this day, but um, yeah, that that was something that that happened to me, and I can I can totally sympathise with it. But Malcolm just doesn't. Again, he does something that I've seen in in other people that I don't do, which is he just kind of reverts to this self-manufactured self-esteem. And you yeah, can yeah. see it in this scene as well when he gets his breath back and starts to get his motor running again. He just reverts into this fantasy mm. land and turns nasty. He's responding to what she said. He's not really listening, is he? He's just kind of defending himself against the words instead of actually letting the words sink in and making that, that important change. And at this point, um, Wick and Erwin arrive to, to carry out the kidnapping. Um, it's really difficult to kind of get into because the scene turns quite subtly. At this it point. does, yeah. I mean, it's a, again a clever piece of writing that it, you know, it pivots, and we know from the show trial of Nipple that the gang can kind of turn on somebody that they would think was an ally. And I think um, Scrawdike, Malcolm, he um, he accuses her of being a spy, doesn't he? Sent yeah, by Allard, and they sort of jump on that um, idea as justification to kind of turn on her. Don't they? That's the thing. I I, I know that this is that this scene is about, well, the film is about kind of the impotence of these men, but I don't think that impotence in itself is what makes them turn nasty. I think it's kind of, it's, it's that crossed with the fact that they are just about to let their revolutionary fantasies turn into, into a fairly violent reality. And it is, it is something real for them. You know, Wick thinks it's really going to happen. This kidnapping is going to happen. And it's because Anne seems, you know, she has, she has offended them and their masculinity, but she it, she also kind of threatens their fantasy plan, which is their compensation for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, she yeah, is she's... she is actually a threat to their terrorist act. Yeah, I mean, it does also. It has that sort of slightly familiar schoolyard bullying atmosphere and tone to it. So as they turn on her, you know, it definitely feels like 
kids just picking on one person, choosing one person and annihilating them. And they just, they go straight in, don't they? They kind of, they talk about punishing her, don't they? For her kind of insolence and for threatening their, their plans. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it actually turns violent. They kind of beat her up and then it becomes a kind of sexualized beating as well when Wick kind of parts her legs and kicks her in the groin. It's so brutal that, isn't it? Yeah, it's hideous. You know, a lot of it's been really subtle, but this, yeah, just, you just watch the sort of, the frenzy of it. I, I did think, again, I'm just nitpicking, I did think the the theatrical moment that she's dead didn't feel necessary because, you know, you you can tell the difference between a dead person and a living person, even if you're in shock about it. And it did feel like a bit of a, a bit of an unnecessary twist. Because they, they beat her up, she drops to the floor, and then they all turn away, don't they? And yeah. just leave her there on the ground. Well, I think she's dead, and then she kind of um, revives um, and manages to get away. Malcolm can't even acknowledge the fact that they've beaten her. He's kind of like, oh, the whole thing was feigned. He's playing it as if she was, <laughs> as if she was pretending the whole thing when they were beating her up. The first two acts have a really giddy kind of unpredictability to them, and that carries on into the third act but it, it just it's so sobering there the way they treat um Anne and the way she crawls you know on her hands and knees to freedom all of that stuff man it really kind of it's you know it's the, the feeling you're left with is just oh it feels hopeless doesn't it and exhausting and, yeah you know heartbreaking and, and just oh and all of that awful. all of that kind of energy and enjoyment's curdled into this one moment hasn't it and because you are kind of sympathetic to him and his uh, impotency and uh, you know shyness and you, you like the other characters wick is kind of you know a little bit of a dummy but quite sort of handsome and charming in his own way and owen feels a little bit kind of in the closet and you know it's it's quite cute and just like talented you know he paints the uh anyway so basically you have these three characters that you kind of like in spite of their delusion and then after you see them act like this it just yeah just pulls the rug out man you're just kind of left utterly deflated by, by the film yeah she escapes and then malcolm's talking about the plan still that you know it doesn't change anything that they can still still do the kidnapping and and finish their kind of their terrorist act yeah and in a there's a really nice bit of symmetry between you know this this last scene and the very first scene is where malcolm's trying to will himself into action again and counting down to you know literally a countdown to will yeah. himself to to make the kidnap happen but when the moment arrives as wick says he hasn't got the nerve we're not gonna do it after what he's just made us do to that girl. After what he's just said. When the moment arrives, he hasn't got the nerve. Look at him. Petrified. The great leader. That miserable lump of solidified crap transfixed there. All this for nothing. He doesn't even finish the countdown, does he? Yeah, and at this point, you know, forensic completely disillusioned in in him and their their worship of him and the things that it's made them do and you leave malcolm in one of those it's a technique i really like there's a really good one at the end of um passion of anna by ingmar bergman where you leave the the lead character wandering around in a kind of semi-crazed state of mind except it's a it's a very wide shot and there's an optical zoom in and in and in and in and in until the picture starts to degrade and that's what you get on our final kind of portrait of Malcolm and then a freeze on that. And that's where we leave Malcolm. And I had one other note, which was um, about that kind of urban legend of uh, Adolf Hitler coming to visit his brother. Was it Alois Hitler that lived um, in Liverpool with his English wife? Um, and I think it was Grant Morrison and Steve Yeole that yeah. did a project for... Deadline or Crisis? It's crisis. Yeah, called. Is it the Secret Life of Adolf Hitler or I think something? It was like, like that? The, the the Adventures of a Young Adult Hitler or something like that, wasn't it? it? Yeah, and it sort of pitches this premise that if he'd have been successful as an artist, as a painter, that that would have been been enough for him, and he maybe wouldn't have you know gone on to you know rule uh, 
Austria, Germany, and yes. so on and so forth. Ruined the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, essentially. The, the New Adventures of Hitler. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, the New Adventures. Apparently it first appeared in a Scottish magazine, Cut, and then I think uh, Crisis started serialising it just before it folded. Yeah, and I think you definitely get some of that with Malcolm, you know, that maybe if he'd have been recognised by his tutor as a great artist of the 20th century, maybe he wouldn't have gone all kind of manic. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the key to Malcolm, isn't it? He, he doesn't do anything. He, he finds it impossible to, to integrate or to, to, to do anything out in the real world, so he can only live in his own world, can't he? And all of his paintings, I mean, they don't, make a big point of it but when you sort of see around his his, yeah. his all squat they're all self-portraits painting things of himself yeah that's it they have the same power fantasies as as a lot of young men you know I, if, if I could do this if I could have the power if I could yeah, yeah you know, sure. if I could assert myself is basically the thing rather than yeah. you know and I don't think they're being held back in any kind of class-based kind of way I think it's purely about about maleness and and male impotence and male need to to if you if you can't be accepted and work as an equal you want to dominate um and i think that ties into some of the things that we were discussing before we started recording when you were saying that it reminded you of of who i talked about dominic cummings and nigel farage and these kind of politicians that seem to have kind of petty bitter grievances grievances with something oh, oh i hate europe and that's enough to kind of destroy you know 50 years of carefully curated international diplomacy you know that's in, enough you know it seems like uh dominic cummings hates poor people yeah cummings seems to be one of those like strange men who cannot cannot tolerate being told what to do so wants to remove any system of oversight or any system of what he sees as bureaucracy well, I think he also sees himself as a great visionary for the future and, and has this dream of sculpting out, uh, you know, a world. But I also think, you know, there's, we're off on a tangent here, but there's all these kind of ideas that he's just another one of Putin's spies placed into the British government to guide it to Putin's vision. So really, you know, Cummings is just a puppet. Yeah, or a useful idiot who's who's so intent on dismantling safeguards that he's letting in something that he doesn't understand the power of. Yeah, he's he's the um, the archetypal middleman. I, I will definitely recommend it to people based on his visual qualities. I think, as you've said, it's it might be a bit of a a, a tough sell to people because it's because it's based on a play and it is quite theatrical and and the pa- the pacing is quite theatrical and it has it is fairly grim. It's one of those films. Uh, as, as soon as I saw it and f- had finished it, I, I forwarded it on and recommended it to a couple of friends. It's kind of, it's not very often you see a film that is about that kind of truthful, bitter Britishness for a, a film to kind of challenge the masculinity of its male audience and to make them consider you know, how we interact with each other. I, ju- I don't know, I just felt like it was really a, a sort of arresting um, presentation of male stuff. Male stuff. <laughs> male stuff. Male stuff. That's a good headline. Mm-hmm.